So it happens, doesn't it? On, on the nightly news, at once were peaceful parades. It even happens around the Thanksgiving dinner table. Everything seems to be going along smoothly until the mood shifts, until the energy changes. Conversation that was fun and festive becomes controversial and critical. And all you wanted was for your Uncle Frank to pass the cranberry sauce. I don't know what this has to do with midterm elections, Uncle Frank. Anybody been there before? My son Moses started a middle school um, just a few weeks ago. He told me on Thursday evening that earlier that day, he saw his first fight on campus. I said, oh, Moses, I'm so sorry. He said, why are you sorry? I said, well, I'm so sorry that you had to see that. And he said, well, I couldn't really see it because I'm not quite as tall as some of the other middle schoolers. There was a calm, and then there was a commotion, and, and then a crowd gathered, and so I went to wherever the crowd was, but I couldn't quite see what was going on. But conflict will always draw a crowd, won't it? Sometimes there's almost a spiritual dimension to it, especially when family and friends are all of a sudden adversaries, even arch enemies. And it hasn't only happened to you, it's happened to all of us. It's even happened to Jesus. It's true. By the end of Mark chapter 3, Jesus has healed the sick. Jesus has declared forgiveness. Jesus has appointed disciples. Jesus has challenged the authorities in their own game and won. And the crowd has gathered around like in Moses' middle school. They love it. See, it's not only conflict that draws a crowd. These people hang on Jesus' every word. They follow Jesus' every step. They applaud Jesus' every action. But then, at the end of Mark 3, the mood shifts, the energy changes, and there is a spiritual dimension to it. What was fun and festive becomes controversial and critical. Hear God's word in Mark chapter 3. We read, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat, which is where I would draw the line. Are you with me? Hey, it's lunchtime. Give us a break, right? Now, it's ironic that Jesus eats on days he's not supposed to, and yet when he's just trying to eat in his own home, he is interrupted from doing so, because so many people gather around him. And in a culture where eating was a ritual and food was scarce. Being forbidden to eat in this way was a scandal of its own. Now, with Jesus entering a house and a crowd gathering around, Mark intends for us to recall two previous stories. One is in Mark chapter 1, near the end of the chapter, verse 29 through 34. Um, Jesus is in a home, and Simon's mother-in-law is feeling ill, and, and Jesus heals her, and then a crowd gathers at the door. Again, in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 or 12, Jesus is in a house, and there's such a crowd gathered around that four guys carrying their friend break the roof to lower their friend down in front of Jesus. Do you remember that? And Jesus sees their faith and says to the man, your sins are forgiven. And so when we turn to Mark 3 and we hear that Jesus is again in a house, and again, a crowd has gathered around. He intends that we remember those two previous stories. But in Mark 3, it's different. 
When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. This could also be translated as seize or restrain. For they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. Notice, Jesus' family thinks he's deluded. The religious folks think he's demonic. They always kind of up the ante a little bit, don't they, the religious folks? This is what scholars refer to as the criterion of embarrassment. It's common, isn't it, in our culture to question whether these accounts of the life of Jesus are actually true, whether we can actually rely on them actually having happened. And so scholars look at a number of different stories in the Gospels that would not be included if they hadn't actually happened. Why? They're very embarrassing. How would it help the Jesus movement in the first century for Mark to tell a story where Jesus' own family think he's deluded and the religious authorities think he's demonic? And this is important. No one questions that these miracles were occurring. The only question, how they were occurring. So Jesus called them over and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself, he cannot stand His end has come. Now, for years, I've wanted to preach a sermon series called That's Not What That Means. Picking up various passages in the scriptures that are quoted to prove a point in one particular way or another, and it's not what it means. This uh, passage would be first on the list of those sermons. It's kind of like in The Princess Bride when Inigo Montoya says, I do not think it means what you think it means. Anybody remember that part? Now, this text would be one of the first in that series because this phrase is so often used to describe political differences. Have you seen this flag? Or it's used to describe college rivalries. I thought that would get more of a reaction, but you're not quite awake. I know the air conditioning was off. It's back on. Give it a minute. Okay. I even found a website, this is true, where you can design your own. This is true. You can design your own a house-divided flag so all your neighbors know whatever divisions are present within your home. Maybe it's how you load the dishwasher, right? Um, Maybe it's how you fold the sheets, right? My wife Cassie and I are currently designing one about my love for and her disgust of cilantro. Yeah. Yeah, you can see it on Monogram Avenue in about four to six weeks after shipping and handling. Um, It was a real turning point in our marriage, though. We were at about like year 12 or 13 when she started buying cilantro for me. Oh, warm my heart. That's another sermon. Jesus is talking about something a little bit different, isn't he? Jesus is talking about something a little bit different. He says this. Check out this metaphor. He says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up, then he can plunder the strong man's house. This language will be repeated in Mark chapter 11, which you'll get to sometime in April. It's when Jesus arrives at the temple. And Jesus says the same thing about the temple that he says 
in these verses. But it's one of the wildest analogies Jesus ever gives, isn't it? Did you notice what he says? He's comparing himself to a thief who would break into a home and tie up residents so he could take all their stuff. Is this confusing to anybody else? Thank you, Barry. I see that nod. I appreciate the hand, Jane. I had a college professor who attended um, a conference every year called the Society of Biblical Literature. Now, this was something that um, religion professors from around the country would go to every week before Thanksgiving. And once we were in upper division classes, we loved it because that means we didn't have any class for an entire week. And one year, one of my professors, his name, by the way, I have to tell you, his name was Telford Work. Is there any better name for a college professor? Telford Work. He goes to this conference with a number of colleagues, and through the day, they're presenting papers and attending seminars, and every night, they would go to a particular diner on their way back to their hotel. And over time, they're there every night, there in the same diner, the, the waitress starts to get the impression that they're Christians. And so one night, after three or four nights of them being there and listening to their conversation, she asks whether they're Christians in the only way that she knows how. She says, and I quote, now are y'all born agains? And my professor, being kind of a quick-witted guy, wants to respond in a way that's a little bit fun. So uh, being born again is a metaphor that Jesus um, engages with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Remember that? You must be born again. And so she asks, are you all born again? My professor, Telford Work, wants to respond with a different metaphor, and he just goes one chapter later to John chapter 4. She says, are you all born again? And he says, we do drink of the water that giveth everlasting life. Now, she didn't get it. <laughs> Harriet got it. Um, but she didn't get it. And yet, uh, us undergraduate religion students thought it was the funniest joke we'd ever heard in our lives. Judging by your reaction, I think you're, uh, we're the only ones. So, fair enough. Okay. <laughs> now, it could have been even funnier. What if my professor had used Jesus' metaphor in Mark 3? We do believe in the one who breaks into people's houses. <laughs> like, what is Jesus doing here? Why is he saying that? He continues, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Let me say that again. People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. All sins, every slander. That's good news, isn't it? But, he continues, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven they are guilty of an eternal sin. And he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Down through the ages, this verse has confused and has concerned a lot of Christians who were worried that somehow, in some way, they had committed this unforgivable sin. But what is Jesus talking about? This unforgivable sin that Jesus is naming is purposely and consciously cutting oneself off from the forgiveness of God. It's with a hardened heart saying that the Holy Spirit's work is actually the work of Satan. So, if you're asking the question whether you have committed this unpardonable sin, which is the work of God in your own life, it's quite nearly impossible that you've done so. It would require the Holy Spirit's work to convict you of that sin. So if you're asking the question, you're probably on safe ground. 
Mark tells us, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, Jesus asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, real quick. I know there are various Bible translations, some of which in recent years have taken, whenever they see the Greek word Adelphoi, translated brothers, they have added in sisters because they've thought that in our time and place, it would be important to know that Jesus was talking to both men and women. Now, you know I have an opinion on that. Many of you have an opinion on that. We're not getting into that now. The only reason I bring it up is this. Can we go back a slide really quick? When Jesus says, here are my mother and brothers, whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother, Jesus is intentionally adding in the word sister. This is not something the translators have done in 2011 to try to make it more uh, easier to understand in 21st century America. This is something Jesus does. I went and checked the Greek New Testament myself. Usually I just do my biblical translation on Google, but this one I actually pulled out the book. Okay, You can trust me. So here's the point. From the outset, the Jesus movement has been egalitarian. It has been open to both men and women to be welcomed in Jesus' home. That's what Jesus is making profoundly clear. Are you with me? Can I get an amen? amen? These verses are what's known as a Markin sandwich. Have you heard that phrase before? Markin sandwich. They are delicious. Let me tell you about them. You see, Mark starts with one topic. That's like the bread. And then he goes to another topic, whatever you like inside your sandwich, turkey, peanut butter, what have you. Then he goes back to the original topic. That's the second slice of bread. So there's a kind of sandwich thing happening here in these verses. And the meaning is in the middle. The middle is meant to interpret the beginning and the end. Mark does this constantly. We'll see it a number of times the next few months. So uh, Jesus' family leaves to take charge of him. That's what happens in the first few verses of this pericope. Then Jesus interacts with the religious authorities. That's the middle of the passage. And then Jesus' family stands outside the house. See, the religious authorities think Jesus is demonic. His family thinks he's deluded. But remember, the meaning is in the middle. It's meant to interpret both the beginning and the end. And in the middle, Jesus engages with religious people who, according to Jesus, are dangerously close to committing this sin that is unforgivable, of cutting themselves off, of dividing themselves, of splitting themselves from the life-giving source of God's Spirit. Thus, all the talk about a house being divided. The language might seem strange to us, even if we consider ourselves followers of Jesus. In 21st century America, it's fairly uncommon to think about the devil. And when we do, when our culture engages stories about the devil, uh, it, it usually comes alongside cartoon images of a little red guy sitting on your shoulder with a pitchfork. Or maybe, at best, Will Ferrell on Saturday Night Live, right? In C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, he writes this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. 
The other is to believe, but to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And the devils themselves are equally pleased by both errors. See, according to Jesus, according to the authors of Scripture, there is a devil. There are a number of different words used to describe his work. Uh, The Satan, the accuser, the evil one, the prince of this world. And when everything is going along smoothly until the mood shifts and the energy changes and what's fun and festive becomes critical and controversial, that's when we see the fruit of the devil's efforts. Now, I'm not implying that the prince of this world inhabits your Uncle Frank at Thanksgiving dinner. It's possible, but not probable. But in certain settings and situations, we see the fruit of his effort. Has ever, anyone ever been in a conflict that erupted out of nowhere? And there was a spiritual sense of something happening in that time and place. We see the fruit of his effort. Remember, the, the word used for devil in the scriptures is the Greek word diabolos. Let me hear you say diabolos. Diabolos. You can hear diabolos. It's, it's kind of um, meanings, means to be split or divided. Dia, cut in half, Right? And this starts all the way back in the garden. Remember what the serpent says to Adam and Eve, asks one very simple question. Did God really say? And in that one question, divides God from his words, divides Adam from Eve, divides humanity from their creator with one simple question. And that splitting And that dividing continues to Jesus' day, so much so that Jesus will say to those religious authorities, he will say, you belong to your father, the devil. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Not exactly Jesus meek and mild, is he? You belong to your father, the devil, and when he lies, he speaks his native language, and that's why you lie, he says. So let's ask it this way. If we want to deconstruct those silly images of a little man sitting with a pitchfork on your shoulder or Will Ferrell playing electric guitar on Saturday Night Live, let's ask it this way. Do you see any lies in our world today? I'll take that as a yes. Do you see any division happening in our world today? Do you see any splitting in our world today? Now, there are two things that we can do about it. One is we can shrug our shoulders and say, ah, that's just the way the world works. That would be to disregard and to deny that there is anything happening, any sort of spiritual component to the division and the splitting and the lies. The other would be to put unhealthy interest in it, like C.S. Lewis says, and say, oh my gosh, the devil's around every corner. Of course we see lies, of course we see division, of course we see splitting. And is it possible, friends, is it possible that Jesus' understanding of the nature of reality is more accurate than 21st century Americas? I would vote yes. And I hope that you would as well. That when Jesus goes to this home and the religious authorities are there whose father is the, whose father, is the father of lies... And Jesus speaks such strong language that Jesus doesn't try to bring peace to the situation. He says it very clearly. That Jesus is telling us about the nature of reality. And that that nature of reality is more accurate than the world around us wants us to believe. That there is a spiritual dimension to the division and the splitting and the lies that we see. 
Remember, the middle of Mark's sandwich is meant to bring meaning to the beginning and the end. It's, it's meant to speak to Jesus' family who would leave their home to take charge of him, and they stand outside that house lest it be divided. Here's the point. Apparently, you can be very familiar with Jesus, but not be part of his family. Jesus says something that's so revolutionary, that's so countercultural, that would bring so much shame on his family outside the house, but he says it anyway. Do you want to know who my mother and my brother and my sisters are? It's those who disbelieve the lies. It's those who won't allow themselves to be divided and split. It's those who will stay with me in this house. You can be very familiar with Jesus, but not part of his family. You can know who he is. You can know where he is, but not be with him. You can be very close, but just outside the door. You see, we, we need to know, like happened in that diner in the South at that conference years ago, we need to know that Jesus calls us to be born again. And we need to know that he gives the water that bringeth everlasting life. But we also need to know, especially now today, especially in the 21st century, when I ask you if you see any lies and if you see any splitting, if you see any divisions, you kind of chuckle to yourself. It's everywhere we look. We need to know not only that Jesus invites us to be born again, not only that Jesus gives us the water that brings everlasting life, we need to know that Jesus is plundering the strong man's house. He has come to tie up the evil one. He has come to bind him. Jesus uses this profoundly awkward metaphor that's so embarrassing, and he says it on purpose because he has come to wage war with the prince of this world. And, and we've watched too much Star Wars that we might think we're not sure who's going to win. Oh, it's, it seems like a pretty equal battle. It is not. Jesus is the stronger man. He's got the rope. He is, in, he is busy binding up the, the enemy. Jesus has come to go toe-to-toe with the prince of this world to root out the lies and to lead us in truth. A single-minded devotion to his kingdom to his family, to being inside that house with him. So the question for us this morning is this. Are you just familiar with Jesus, or are you part of his family? Are you just familiar with Jesus, looking in from the outside, thinking he's a good guy? That's not really an option he's given us, to think he's just a good guy. There's another uh, great C.S. Lewis quote. He says, Jesus is either a lunatic or a madman, or he's telling you the truth. Because no one would say the things that he says unless he was completely crazy or completely telling us the truth. Jesus doesn't give us the opportunity to just look in from the outside and say, yeah, he seems like a good guy. I kind of like him. That's just being familiar with Jesus. Jesus doesn't leave us that option. He wants us to be part of his family, to be mother, brother, sister, In what ways are you outside the house looking in? How are you split? How are you divided from a single-minded purpose to live life in his family? Is it in your finances? That you spend money how you want to spend it and and don't think about how God's kingdom is breaking forth into this world and, and, and with your finances you can join him? 
Is it with your relationships that you know are not honoring Christ in the way you're talking to people or interacting with them? Is it with your time? Is there a a split? Is there a division where, where we give so much time here and just very little here? And on Sunday morning, we come in for an hour and we sit in God's house, but the rest of the week we are outside. If it's true what Jesus said, if it's true who Jesus is, then there are ways in which he wants to speak to us this morning. And I want to invite us to take a few moments of silence. Wherever we're at in that journey of faith, wherever we're at in relation to this house, to pause and to think, what ways are we split? What ways are we divided? What ways are we outside the house, only familiar with Jesus instead of part of his family? So I want to invite us to take a few moments to ask Jesus to speak to us wherever we are, and then we'll conclude with a song. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that your spirit has gathered us into this house as brothers and sisters, that all are welcome, all are invited, all are to be drawn in. And yet, would you speak to us in this moment about the ways that we are split, that we are divided, that we are of two minds? Speak to us, God, for your servants are listening. By the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit, God, we pray that you would equip us and empower us with the truth. That you would lead us to live lives that root out the lies. That see clearly the ways in which we have been divided, that we are split, that we are outside the house, and that you would draw us in. God, if there are any of us here this morning who haven't yet officially said, yes, I want to be part of this family. I want to be part of Jesus' movement. I want to be inside the house. As we conclude in worship this morning, would this closing song be an opportunity to pray that prayer, to say yes, to be welcomed into your family, not just to be familiar with you. We give you thanks for the good news of the gospel that comes for all of us, that every sin can be forgiven, every slander that we have uttered. Would it be so for our good and for your glory? It's in your name we pray. Amen.